It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, August 9th, 2021, a new week here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Very happy to have each and every one of you along each and every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you can't listen as we air live, then there's a podcast at your fingertips every day, free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com is our website where really everything you need to know about the show, it's right there. GuyBensonShow.com. Programming note tonight, I will be on special report. The panel, Brett Bayer's crew, in the 6 p.m. Eastern time hour, usually around 6.40 p.m. Eastern. So I hope you'll have a chance to tune in and catch me there. Here on the radio side, here's the lineup today. Mara Liason will join us later this hour, Fox News contributor, NPR correspondent. Looking forward to catching up with Mara. Brian Riedel who's a policy wonk, particularly on budget issues. He's at the Manhattan Institute after having a long career on Capitol Hill. He has come to a conclusion about the bipartisan infrastructure deal. I see both sides of the debate, at least from the Republican perspective. What should be done with this deal? Is it worthy of passage? There was a CBO score from the Congressional Budget Office that I think is rather concerning to me, at least, as I assess the package. I know Brian has concerns as well. We will get his verdict in the next hour. And in our final hour, Josh Holmes, longtime Mitch McConnell aide, now co-host of the Ruthless podcast. He's a political consultant. He's always fun to have here. We will chat about all the political news of the day with Josh in our final hour. We begin with a Fox News alert. And the stats, cases of coronavirus officially in the United States climbing 35.8 million confirmed cumulative cases in the U.S. over more than a year and a half. And the real number, as we always remind you, is higher because cases, for example, like mine, my breakthrough case, which was thankfully very short and very mild, as they typically are if you're fully vaccinated, my case was not officially counted, I don't think, in any government database even though it existed. And before we even had reliable testing, there were many millions of cases that went undetected. So that number is not terribly accurate. The death toll, unfortunately, is. And the death toll in this country from COVID, now 616,594. That is up 92% over two weeks ago. Now, we're still sort of in low to mid three figures a day, which is horrible. It's tragic. Every single soul that is lost to COVID. It's still way, way, way better and less horrific than we saw during previous spikes. And the reason is we have a lot more vaccinated people in this country now. We have 164 million vaccinated people in this country, plus many others with natural immunity. So even though we've got a really 
nasty Delta surge across the country, especially in unvaccinated areas. I mean, when you look at the death toll from COVID and how it's growing, it is almost exclusively among unvaccinated people at this point, which is a great reason to get vaccinated because the vaccines effectively eliminate hospitalization and death from COVID for people who get that vaccine. But because a lot of people have gotten the vaccine or have survived COVID and have those antibodies, this wave, not on cases, because the cases are definitely spiking, hospitalizations are concerning in certain parts of the country among the unvaccinated. Deaths are much lower as a proportion, right, as a number of the cases in that, that relationship, cases to deaths, it has been largely decoupled and almost completely decoupled among the vaccinated, which is why that we talk about on a, right, on a very frequent basis, why we talk about the efficacy of those vaccines. And we will return to COVID a bit later in the program. I want to begin today with two stories out of the city of Chicago, a city that's close to my heart. I spent seven years living in and around Chicago, four years as an undergraduate at Northwestern, three years beginning my career living in the city. I love Chicago. Some of my dearest friends in the world live there. I love getting back there for sporting events and a lot of what that city has to offer. I think that sometimes there's this kind of impulse among conservatives and conservative commentators to use Chicago as a talking point. Right There's a trope where conservatives will point out violence in the city of Chicago as kind of a knee-jerk reaction to other things. And sometimes the points are completely fair to make because they burst a lazy or incomplete argument on the left. Or they highlight corruption and failed governance in a very blue city. right? And when it comes to corruption or gun control or any other number of issues... Fairly and unfairly, you will have, especially people on the right, rushing to cite Chicago as an example. And I think when there's a strong point to be made and a substantive argument to advance, I don't see any problem with that. Because Chicago does have flaws, significant ones. And sometimes there are comments made by people on the left or arguments that are, shall we say, complicated by the Chicago example. I do think that conservatives should try to stray away from just in a knee-jerk, reflexive fashion going to Chicago sort of as a whataboutism crutch. Or if liberals will say, well, we have a problem with this, or we're upset about that, just to come back and say, oh, yeah, well, what about Chicago? Why aren't you mad about this? What about that? I think sometimes it's not the strongest argument. So that's sort of the wind-up to this conversation, because not every negative reference to the problems that they have with violence in Chicago should be out of bounds. Some people on the progressive left have tried to turn even mentions of Chicago and their endemic problems into a racist dog whistle. Oh, you're not allowed to talk about that. No, we are. Let's just be thoughtful and accurate about how and when we choose to do so. So I'm choosing to do so today for a few reasons. One, something absolutely horrific happened there over the weekend. Chicago police have now arrested three suspects in the fatal shooting of a 29-year-old female police officer 
She was murdered during a traffic stop on the south side of Chicago, the nation's third largest city. Her name is Ella French. Right? I don't see a ton of celebrities and activists out there chanting or hashtagging say her name. But we're going to say it here. Ella French, 29-year-old officer. She had just returned. This is gut-wrenching. She had just returned to active duty from maternity leave. She was killed. Her partner seriously wounded during an armed confrontation with these suspects. French is survived by a two-month-old daughter. One of 10 people killed and 64 wounded by gun violence throughout Chicagoland over the weekend, which unfortunately is not atypical. There was one weekend last month where there were over 100 people shot, 19 killed. There have been over two, well over 2,000 shootings in the city of Chicago this year so far, and we just started the month of August. And this often gets especially bad in the summer. 29-year-old woman just back from maternity leave, two-month-old at home, shot dead in the traffic stop, police officer, in the city of Chicago. It is just horrific. The mayor in Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, had some tweets about this. Here's one of them. Quote, some say we don't do enough for the police. Others say we do too much. All of this must stop. We have a common enemy. It's guns and the violence they bring. Some say we don't do enough for the police. Others say we do too much. Okay, so it's sort of like the little law on one hand. On the other hand, you can see how the police have been treated, how they've been scapegoated, how they've been caricatured, how they've been lumped together and smeared over and over again, especially in big blue cities with leaders who are beholden to an activist class. And then Mayor Lightfoot says, we have a common enemy, it's guns and the violence they bring. Actually, no, I I think the common enemy would be criminals. Right? The enemy is not an uh, inanimate object. The enemy is crime and the people who commit the crime and the people who murder police officers. I mean, this tweet, I think, really typifies part of the problem, right, where she's even in the wake of the murder of a young police officer, she's still pandering to the anti-police crowd and then decides to make it a political point about guns, which is sort of a talking point that leftists can wrap their head around as opposed to crime, which is a thornier, more difficult problem that has lots of causes. And when you're really concerned about crime, demonizing the police as a broad group is a bad idea. And we see what happens in these cities where police feel like they are not supported, where they have enforcement hands tied behind their back. The results for communities are devastating and deadly. So while we're on this subject and we're talking about the city of Chicago, CBS2, their local affiliate in the Windy City, they did a report about a huge surge in police retirements. Members of CPD 
are looking and heading for the exits because they feel like they are being mistreated and demagogued. And then you see all this violence breaking out, and a lot of cops are saying, what's the point of this? Why am I staying here? Why am I doing this? Cut 13, here's part of the report. In just the first six months of this year, 367 officers retired. Well, I spoke with a recently retired officer to give us some insight into these rising numbers. And that person agreed to speak with us if we agreed to conceal their identity. People see us as the enemy, and we're not. All we're trying to do is is help the people of the community, the city of Chicago. This person who had nearly 25 years on the job retired within the past year from the Chicago Police Department. Retirement numbers are broken up in two ways. Those who don't get their pension because they're not eligible and those who do get a pension. Data obtained through public records shows in 2017, 37 officers left the department before being eligible for a pension. So far this year, that number is nearly double with 68 officers. For those who are retiring with their pension, that number has been climbing steadily over the years. In 2018, 339. In 2019, 475. Last year, 560. And already this year, 367 officers just through June. For this retired officer who left the department with numerous commendations, the streets of Chicago became too much. So you have two types of retirements from the police force in Chicago with your pension or without and if you don't have your pension you don't even have those benefits to say goodbye at that point is I think deeply indicative of a culture that you think can't be fixed in 2017 the report said 37 Chicago cops left Chicago PD without being eligible for a pension so far this year again We're just over halfway through the year. That number is already roughly double the entire total from 2017. 68 and counting within that category. Hundreds more who are finally, they're like, oh, I'm eligible for my pension. I'm out of here. Leaving by the hundreds. And why? This officer, former officer that they spoke to, explains in Cut 14. We get spit on. We get things thrown at us. You know, you they're fighting with us. People are protesting, calling us names. And not just the protesters, but you've got the, the people that are supposed to have our back in government. This former and officer says there's government. a feeling the rank and file don't have the support they need to carry out their duties from the superintendent and mayor. If someone had our back, we could do our jobs. But again, threatened with lawsuits, indictments, officers getting fired. That is actually, again, stifling us. The retired officer says another reason for the mass exodus, the mandatory 12-hour days to increase patrols throughout the city. But this doesn't address the need to hire more officers. We want to work in a department that that, um, is standing by us and standing by us and doing our jobs. If we do our jobs to the best of our ability, stand by us. Don't toss us aside. And he's speaking for hundreds of officers as crime again is a disaster in this city and the reason he says is that the city doesn't have their back i am all for police accountability and reform i've said that repeatedly when you demonize the police as a group when you talk about defunding blaming scapegoating and 
defanging their ability to do their jobs because of activists and complaints, this is the result. It is a policy failure. And it's playing out in real time in cities across this country. And I wanted to bring this Chicago example to your attention because of the horrible developments over the weekend. Much to discuss, so many topics to get to, and we are just getting started. On this Monday, it's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm going to make sure I have security because I know I have had attempts on my life and I have too much work to do. There are too many people that need help right now for me to, to allow that. So if I end up spending 200000 if I spend 10, 10, 10 more dollars on it, you know what? I get to be here to do the work. So suck it up and defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police and put that money into social safety nets because we're trying to save lives. It's the Guy Benson Show. That's a soundbite that went everywhere last week, and people just had a field day with it. I was off Thursday and Friday, so I haven't really given my two cents on those comments from Cori Bush, congresswoman from Missouri, a Democrat, a member of the squad, newly elected, where she was addressing the fact that she spends a lot of money on personal security, her office, spends a lot of money on her personal security, but she's calling for defunding the police for everyone else. And she was very candid about it. She said, well, I'm just too important. I have too much work to do. So I need security. But we're going to defund the police because we're trying to save lives, which, of course, is incoherent. The opposite would happen. So many people have pointed out the hypocrisy here. This, I mean, on steroids. It's, it's amazing that she said it as succinctly as she did. In that sense, it's almost a public service. The thing I would add is, this is the same congresswoman who just almost single-handedly forced the hand of the President of the United States, Joe Biden, to do something that he said was unconstitutional on the eviction moratorium that we addressed last week, clearly unconstitutional. He decided to move forward anyway with the unconstitutional executive order because of her agitation. She was congratulated by Schumer and Pelosi. And when she's calling for defunding the police, you can't dismiss her as a backbencher who's not influential. She clearly, in some ways, is calling the shots. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. GuyBensonShow.com. As we return to the show on this Monday, thank you for listening every day. I'm Guy Benson, and joining me now is Mara Liason, national political correspondent at NPR and a Fox News contributor. Mara, great to have you back here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. So I'm first curious about your thoughts on sort of a water cooler topic today among many 
this big weekend party in Martha's Vineyard for Barack Obama and his 60th birthday. It looked pretty amazing uh, based on the photos and the videos that have leaked out. I mean, my attitude is sort of hats off. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Glad you had a great time with hundreds of your closest friends. It's just like circus tent, giant tent that they had set up. There are people saying... They're not so sure about the optics here, even though it was, you know, an overwhelmingly vaccinated crowd. Is this the message to be sending when so many people are being told their kids have to wear masks and they shouldn't do this, that or the other? I just wonder how you think that looks. And is this an overblown controversy or do the critics, at least of the optics, have a point? Well, I think it's an overblown controversy, and here's why. He's not the president. He hasn't been the president for a while. He, according to his spokesman, they followed every CDC guideline. Uh, If it was outdoors, it's in an area that they don't have high transmissions, so I'm assuming people didn't wear masks outside. But they were vaccinated. I think masks were actually provided. And I think the real question is, will this turn into a super spreader event? I think then it gets to be a political problem. Are there going to be all sorts of people who went to this party who developed COVID? We don't have any indication that that's the case now, uh, but that is the only way that I see this become a real problem. I think there are all sorts of what you might call pseudo problems that uh, partisans on either side like to gin up. Um, But the president, uh, former President Obama had said that he was curtailing the size of the party. In other words, it was supposed to be much bigger, and then he said it was only going to keep it to family and friends, but he has a lot of friends. Yeah, it looked like a lot of people. I mean, if that was scaled down, (laughs) I I mean, I would love a scaled down party that looks like that ever uh, because it looked pretty amazing. And again, I don't begrudge him. It, It looked fantastic. If I had somehow wrangled an invite, I would love to be on Martha's Vineyard for a weekend and party with a bunch of famous people and that sort of thing. And I just think if you get vaccinated and then you're going to go live your life, I'm all for it. I just think that we should be treating everyone the same way. Yes, absolutely. And I worry about that a little bit in terms of what that image, these images and the reports, what message that sends to people in the middle of the country who have never been to Martha's Vineyard, who have a lot of government officials and you know pe- members of the Biden administration and sort of the glitterati class all gathering at this very fancy place to have this big bash while saying, oh, you know, you need to do this and you ought to do that. And we're in the middle of a public health crisis and it's you know, so irresponsible. I think that there are nuances to the guidance and to the way we talk about these things, I do think sometimes a photo can cut through a thousand words of CDC guidance. And when you see a giant tent on Martha's Vineyard for a big party of the beautiful people, I can see why some people might just roll their eyes and say, all this stuff they lecture us about, they don't even really believe it. And so I'm just going to live my life. The problem is that the message is so confusing. People are not being told to go back to lockdowns. People are not being told, stay in your houses, don't go out the way that they were back in, you know, January, February, March. Uh, That's not the case. People are told to get vaccinated. And if they live in an area of high transmission, to wear masks indoors. That is, if you distill it down, that's the CDC guidance. The problem is, and I think the reason why it's possible to make 
something like the Obama birthday party into a political issue is because the guidance has been so confusing. I mean, wait, if you're vaccinated, you still have to wear a mask. Why should then why bother getting vaccinated? It's been very confusing. And and also, Mara, just just a point, you know, Provincetown and that big breakout of Mm -hmm. covid cases among vaccinated people that happened not far from Martha's Vineyard. I mean, that's right. You know, the Cape and Islands, it's one area there. The message that I was trying to convey to the audience last week about the Provincetown uh, super spreader event was not that vaccines don't work. It's that they do because you had hundreds of these cases and only, what, four or five hospitalizations and zero deaths. To me, that was an indication that it worked. And yet it seems like the Provincetown example, which was an area of low spread until it wasn't, right, that was part of what informed the CDC guidance about wearing masks even if you're vaccinated. Then you had the NIH director saying, well, if your kids aren't vaccinated and you're a parent, you should wear a mask at home. And then Fauci said the next day, wait, nope, he didn't mean to say it quite that way. It's just sort of a comedy of errors, Mara, that I think when it adds up over time, people just want to wash their hands of the whole thing. Yes. See, 99% of public health work is communication. And I would say that there are so many failures all over on this. For instance, you just said the, the, the headline that should be coming out of these events is vaccines work the way they're supposed to. They're not supposed to prevent you from ever testing positive. They're supposed to prevent you from getting very sick or hospitalized or dead if you do get the virus. But because Um, of the confusion out of the CDC. And also, I have to blame the media for the big headlines. Vaccinated people can still get COVID. Yes, they can test positive, but getting COVID is just like getting a mild flu or a cold. cold. Um, So I think that's what happened to me. I mean, this is this was my experience last week. I tested positive. I'm fully vaccinated. I was very transparent about it on my social Mm -hmm. media feeds and on this show. And what the doctors, we've had all the Fox doctors on this show over and over again for a year and a half, and we're very grateful for their time during this pandemic. And one of them, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, had said, Guy, what the vaccines do, number one, they are actually quite effective at blocking transmission. So you are much less likely to get COVID at all if you're vaccinated. But if you do get it, it's basically a common cold at this point. And that is precisely what I experienced. And I only got tested because I knew I was about to be around a lot of unvaccinated older people and I had some sniffles. So just to be careful, I got that rapid test. It came back positive. I did the quarantine protocol, felt fine, and then tested negative back to back and was free, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. a pretty painless experience all around. Yep. But trying to trying to communicate that with this morass of confusion out there, much of it being stoked by the people in charge. I mean, it has been a a frustrating experience. Yes, I agree. And the bottom line, and I wish that everybody could just get to the bottom line, is vaccinations work. The best way to prevent getting COVID and spreading COVID is to get vaccinated, period. Yep. I mean, that's, that's the most important thing for people to know. Mara, I want to shift gears to a story in Axios today, and it's about new internal polling. It's not just internal. There's some polling on this as well. Here's the lead in the story. Inflation, rising crime, and the border surge are positioning Republicans for even bigger midterm gains than they'd imagined just months ago. And it sort of goes through in this story what 
Democrats are doing in terms of their rhetoric and policy, the way it's playing, the way that it's being exploited, at least at this stage, by Republicans, and how that combination of issues, inflation, crime, and immigration, is at least appearing to be a real boon and a wind at the back of Republicans as they try to win back at least one, if not both, houses of Congress next year. I wonder, based on your conversations with political figures, pollsters, strategists on both sides of the aisle, what do you make of that analysis, A, and B, if you agree that that sort of uh, combination, that brew of factors are problematic for Democrats right now, are they necessarily going to be the top issues come this time next year? Well, that's a big question. We're more than a year away from Election Day. But I would say that the optimism among Republicans and the pessimism among Democrats about holding the House is is right on. In other words, I would agree with that article in terms of how confident Republicans feel. And I would say Republicans felt super confident about taking back the House before this latest slate of polls. So I, as a matter of fact, I've never, I can't think of another midterm where the out party was so confident this early in the cycle. Uh, Actually, because most, worries me. <laughs> they only, pardon? It almost well, worries me. Only, right? well, yes, it could be overconfidence, but I would say that Republicans have some real reasons to be confident. They only need five seats to get the House back because Democrats did so poorly down ballot in 2020. That's why they're in the situation they're in. Everyone expected Democrats to pick up seats in state legislatures and Congress, even Republicans did. And uh, Republicans did surprisingly well. Everyone was surprised, including them. So they have a very, very small um, gap to make up. They probably can get those five seats just through redistricting because they control the, the governor's mansions and state legislatures in enough states that they'll control the redistricting process. Remember, we're, you know, the election in a year with a zero at the end of it is yep, always plus it matters. one. Um, yeah, it really matters. So I think that Republicans have a lot of reasons to be very confident about getting the House back. The Senate, completely different animal. Um, I think that the Senate is a jump ball. I can see the Republicans taking the majority back. I can see the Democrats picking up a seat or two. Yeah, I think that or just holding serve. Right. I would or not be. Holding, yes. Or yeah, just holding I, steady. Totally. I would not be shocked at all at this stage. Right. Because it's still very early days. I would not be shocked at all if you told me after the 2022 cycle, Republicans are going to have a good year, but the Senate is going to remain 50 50. You know, t- take a few, yep. give a few yep. and it ends up around 50 50. But as Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell will tell you, the difference between 50 50 and 51 49 is everything. Everything. Especially if Everything. you've got the Democrats, of course, in charge of the White House, as they will be after uh, yes. 2022. Yes. And so Republicans, if they could just tip the scales one seat further and have Majority Leader McConnell just by the skin of his teeth, we're looking at a very different state of play politically than we would otherwise. Although I think the likelihood of divided government is strong. Right. So yes. sort of depending yes. on how, yes. how Republicans do in the Senate, it may not be that consequential with a Democratic president, but it also sets up the playing field for the next round of elections, which is how this game always works. Last question, yes. Mara, very quickly. In your conversations with Biden administration officials and as they're thinking about the politics of the next 
12, 15 months leading up to the midterms. What's their mindset right now? Are they trying to govern in a way that limits the damage in the election, or are they trying to govern in a way that takes advantage of their slim majorities now because they might be gone soon? You know what? Sometimes those are the same thing. In other words, limiting the damage doesn't necessarily mean trimming your sales. What's really interesting is that uh, passing, for instance, big $3 trillion, uh, whatever you want to call it, human infrastructure bill with Democratic votes only, that's seen as something that will help them in the midterms, in their mind. In other words, they get through their priorities, they show they can deliver, and that's the way they win the midterms. They're, it's, it's interesting to me how being big, big and bold and ambitious in the mind of the White House and Democrats is seen as a way to stave off big losses in the midterms. It's not by becoming more moderate and playing it safe. Ah, well, we'll see how inflation decides to react to that. Should they? Well, that ca- is, com- that <laughs> is, those are different things. Those are things that are outside forces. Inflation. If it well, keeps but on going, not if, not if you're spending trillions of more dollars, right? Like the that could well, contribute to a problem. You know, but except for when you talk to economists, those trillions of dollars that are in these infrastructure bills are not going to be spent right away. They're not stimulus bills. They're not like the COVID relief bills or the American Rescue Plan. These are things that are going to be spent over a very long period of time. So they're not going to be huge inflation boosters in the mean in the near term. What's in what's fueling inflation is this kind of a huge uh, demand and people can't get chips to make cars. They can't get, you know, they, it's a, it's a demand driven inflation. Uh, and the supply chains are still disrupted because of COVID. But I do think crime, especially people's perceptions of it, the most interesting polling factoid I saw recently was when people were asked, is crime a problem in the country? Big majorities. Yes. Is crime a problem in, in, in your state? Yes. Is crime a problem in your city, town, or community? No. In other words, crime is something mostly they see on TV. Now, crime rates are going up in, in, in certain right. places. The numbers are real. We're not, the numbers are real, but remember, we had a period of declining crime for about a decade. It's definitely come up again, but not to the extent it used to be. And it's something that I think the Republicans have manipulated really skillfully, you know, by convincing large numbers of people that we are in the midst of some kind of a, re- a record-breaking crime wave. Well, it may All not be record-breaking. The trajectory is yeah. what it is. And I think for yes, Republicans, I mean, it would, be, it, yeah, it would be political malpractice not to make that an issue. Right. And, right. and it'll also, if inflation continues, Republicans, it would be insane for yes. them not to tie it to the Democratic spending. And we'll see yes. how everything is feeling and looking. And, and feeling is definitely part of it, to your point, a yes. year from now yes. when we'll be in crunch time ahead of the midterms. Mara Eliason, national political correspondent at National Public Radio and a Fox News contributor. Mara, Always enjoy our conversations. Let's do it again soon. Yes, thank you so much. That's Mara Lyson on The Guy Benson Show, which returns after this. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
It's the Guy Benson Show. Sorry, not sorry, sings Demi Lovato. And I wonder if that's Demi's response to this latest issue that she's dealing with. Or they. She. I'm, this is, I knew this was going to happen. Demi Lovato is non-binary. That was announced recently. And the pronouns that Demi prefers are they and them. And it's just very hard to do. Especially having thought of Demi as, and referred to Demi as she and her forever. So I'm not trying to be a jerk about any of it. It's just, it's difficult to keep all of it straight. But Demi Lovato posted on Instagram in recent days a photo of Lollapalooza, huge music festival in Chicago. And it was packed. And by the way, it doesn't look like there was a big super spreader event, but some people were angry about it. Look at this. Look at all these people. And Demi Lovato was one of them. On Instagram, Demi posted this photo of Lollapalooza with thousands of people packed in and wrote, Come on, y'all. There's still a pandemic happening. Three exclamation points. Well, then Demi was at a concert on stage last night in Los Angeles or Southern California. 9,000 people at this concert, indoors, no vaccination-proof negative test required at this event. And Demi was on stage performing, having just denounced people for going to an outdoor music festival because there's a pandemic happening, multiple exclamation points, and then shows up on stage at an indoor multi-thousand-person gathering days later. And... In that sense, she's almost sort of following in the footsteps of Governor Gavin Newsom, Mayor Muriel Bowser, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, with this blizzard of conflicting information and hypocrisy. So I guess welcome to that club, Demi. There's a lot of people in the club, as it turns out. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Our middle hour is underway here on The Guy Benson Show, broadcasting live from my home in greater Washington, D.C. Glad to have you listening wherever you happen to be. GuyBensonShow.com for many of the ways to listen live or to catch our free podcast if that's your jam instead. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or other avenues where you get your podcasts. We are there. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closes the day in the red, down 106 points, closing at 35,101. With me now is Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's a veteran of Capitol Hill, where he has waged many budget-related battles, and he's now an analyst. Brian, good to have you back here. Glad to be back, Guy. Thanks. All right, so... One of the ongoing discussions we've had here on the show in recent weeks surrounds sort of this one-two punch of the bipartisan infrastructure arrangement, which has advanced in the Senate, although it has not been passed yet, 
and it has bipartisan support, as the moniker would suggest, and then this massive spending spree that the Democrats are talking about doing on their own through reconciliation, $3.5 trillion is what they're hoping to do. Some of the senators are suggesting that's going to be too high, even for them, members of their party. But multi-trillion, I think, is a safe way to describe what the Democrats are going to try to do on their own, in addition to, or in place of, sort of depending on how this all works out, the bipartisan infrastructure deal. And we've had people on this show who say it's a terrible deal for the Republicans to be involved in any of this. Don't put GOP fingerprints on any of it. Force the Democrats to figure it out on their own. Others say that would be foolish. You'd rather control some of it rather than none of it. And if you put a lot of the good stuff that is broadly appealing into a bipartisan bill, it might give more leverage to the moderate Democrats to bring down the top number uh, of this spending orgy that the Democrats are plotting uh, to do on a party-line basis. So I am actually very open to both sides of the debate. I think that there are fair, good points being made on both sides. I don't think that anyone should be thrown out of the party for agreeing or disagreeing. I will say one of the ways that the bipartisan plan was sold was that it doesn't raise taxes and it was fully paid for. And it looks like that fully paid for claim took a bit of a body blow from the Congressional Budget Office in the last couple of days. So that's sort of setting the table for this conversation, Brian. I know that you and I are absolutely in agreement. We're opposed to this huge soft infrastructure, human infrastructure nonsense, trillions of more dollars that the Democrats want to try to jam through in reconciliation. I think every single conservative is against that. The question is this infrastructure bill. Tell us what the CBO found, first of all, and then in your mind, based on your experience, what does that lead you to conclude about the bipartisan bill? Yeah, this bill was supposed to be $550 billion that would be totally paid for in spending cuts. In fact, several Republicans said that was, that was required for them to vote for it. What the Congressional Budget Office determined is really it's about $350 billion short of being paid for. Um, it's $250 billion short um, uh, just using the official numbers. And then even that understates the, 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 the actual pay-fors because there's a $90 billion bailout to the highway and transit trust funds that isn't even counted. So that gets you up to $350 billion. And a lot of the, even the offsets that even get you to $350 billion are laughable gimmicks. My favorite example is they had the Department of Health and Human Services come up with a $50 billion expenditure and then decide not to do it and then counted that as a $50 billion spending cut. So simply coming up with an idea, not doing it, then counts as a $50 billion cut. It's absurd. Wait, so hang on. Just, so like, let's say I woke up one day and said, I want to go buy a new car, and I'm going to get a really nice one. So I'm going to spend $50,000 on a new car. And then the next day I say, actually, you know what? I'm not going to spend that $50,000. They're sort of treating that process as a savings of $50,000 to me, even though, I mean, I don't know, that's not really how money works. 
Exactly. That's exactly. That is counted. That is a $50 billion offset in the CBO score of the bill. It's coming up. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's like a family just thinking about taking a vacation, not taking it, and then treating that money as found money that's new for them to spend elsewhere. It's absurd. There's all sorts of gimmicks like that. I mean, I think if you strip out the gimmicks, almost zero of the $550 billion is paid for. Um, I, think, I think it is a huge mistake for Republicans who had talked about fiscal responsibility are talking about not raising the debt limit to be giving approval to to this huge this is one of the biggest deficit bills outside of emergencies in the last 50 years and the thing is with how it how it relates to the to the reconciliation bill this isn't actually going to save any money because anything that republicans successfully stripped out of this spending bill is just going to get thrown into the 3.5 trillion dollar reconciliation bill anyway and now republicans have partial ownership on the on the process um, the reconciliation bill is as you mentioned it's going to have all sorts of of liberal priorities there's going to be public housing long term care family leave uh medical leave immigration uh, they're trying to put in there they're, they're trying to put immigration in there it, it, it's really just kind of a it's a it's a liberal greatest hit um there's going to be lots of green new deal um the way they've written the bill is at least at this point it says that it can run a maximum deficit of 1.75 trillion so what that would suggest the the, the 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 reconciliation bill doesn't give spending or revenue numbers it says that the final result can be short of paid for by as much as 1.75 trillion so if they can't get any tax cuts through they can spend up to 1.75 trillion or if they get the full 1.75 trillion in tax uh, a tax hike that'll be needed to spend three and a half trillion okay that's a lot to digest so i mean Again, there are elements of this infrastructure bill that I like. I think if you're going to spend money on something called infrastructure, you might as well do it on real infrastructure and not sort of fake definitions of it. I think not touching any tax increases to get there is a good thing. I think if you are going to market it as fully paid for and then it's not fully paid for, that's kind of a concern to me, especially when you just go through the math there. I mean, it looks like generously – there's $400 billion of a of a hole there, although I know some of the lead negotiators on both sides, Kirsten Sinema on the Democratic side, Rob Portman on the Republican side, someone with whom you're very familiar, they came out and sort of didn't necessarily refute CBO, but sort of said, well, they don't really get the full picture. They sort of had a rebuttal document to CBO, and I just feel like you start to get into a treacherous territory there. If you start saying that the nonpartisan scores, I mean, you know, CBO is not infallible, and I think they've scored things uh, in ways that are questionable in the past, certainly. But to say, well, they're claiming that three hundred and fifty billion is not paid for, but sort of avert your eyes from that is effectively their argument. Maybe I'm being uncharitable. That doesn't fill me with a great deal of confidence, Brian. No, and, and some of the arguments they've made, they said, well, it's it's paid, it's really paid for because we're going to get all these economic growth revenues. Well, the Congressional Budget Office, in a separate report, said you're only going to get $6 billion over 10 years in growth savings. Uh, the authors of the bill also said, well, there's other savings the government has had over the last year or two that aren't related to this bill, and they're not part of this bill, but we're just going to count those savings for this bill. Well, First off, CBO is not going to count that. And second, that doesn't reduce the cost of the bill. 
uh, at all if they're totally right. unrelated. And third, the areas where we've saved money because, say, some of the COVID costs have come in lower than expected have been balanced by other parts of the COVID bills that have come in more expensive than expected. So what, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're cherry-picking some unrelated budget events that have nothing to do with this bill. Yeah, it's some and smoke and mirrors. That, you know, we're we're going to count that as savings. If So what do you make of the argument, and this is a counterpoint that I think has some legs, at least in my mind, if you pass a bipartisan bill, it sort of pulverizes the talking point that Republicans never are willing to make deals and they're just operating in bad faith and bipartisanship is dead, so don't even bother trying. Democrats should just do everything on their own. If you kill that argument, at least wound it seriously for the time being, that makes it harder for Democrats to make that case proactively and it equips the Joe Manchins and Kirsten Cinemas of the world to come out and say, no, actually, bipartisanship isn't dead. We've achieved this thing, and we did so in a responsible way. $3.5 trillion is totally irresponsible. We can't get on board with that. We've gotten a lot of what we've wanted already in the bipartisan bill. We need to pare this other number way down, and they're newly empowered to do that. Do you think that there's some truth to that argument? I understand that argument. I I find it a little naive because the media and the left is not going to give Republicans credit for being bipartisan on this bill. Um, First off, the the entire claim of Republican obstructionism has been so overstated. I've written a lot of articles on that that you can find on on Google. Uh, The Republican obstructionism argument is, 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 is... Pre, is far overstated. And on top of it, you're assuming that the media and Chuck Schumer are really going to give Republicans credit? No. The next no, no, but, Republicans but voters, bill, we're going to hear the might. same argument. That's true. But I think, I think if you can have counterpoints that people have heard of, I, I'm not ever interested in Chuck Schumer being fair. I'm not expecting that. I'm not expecting most of the media to be fair. But facts are still facts, and it would be at least a fair point that Republicans could raise, whether it's worth it, whether it's worth the trade-offs. I think that's a very separate question. And Brian, you seem to be making the case in your position, the Republicans should say absolutely no to all of this. Pass whatever you can on your own Democrats. We want no part of it. And you make a persuasive case. And I think some Republican senators are wrestling with these dynamics right now. We'll see how it plays out. Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute on The Guy Benson Show. Always appreciate it, Brian. And with that, we will step aside and be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Well, one of our favorite segments that we started just a number of weeks ago is Woke Tales. It even has its own jingle, which we love. It's a tip of the cap to DuckTales. Let's listen. Woke Tales. Oh, we love it. I hear a lot from listeners who very much enjoy the Woke Tales segments, not just the substance, but the jingle as well. I'm all about it. And what I like about this segment in general is that it's gaining enough steam 
that people and listeners are now sending me material that they think ought to at least get a look, get a glance for a Woke Tales segment. And we're always interested. Bring us your Woke excesses. We will review. And if it makes the cut, we might build a little segment around it. So today's edition of Woke Tales comes via a listener and from Madison, Wisconsin and the University of Wisconsin, home of the Badgers who I believe were runners-up, maybe even third place in the Big Ten West football last year. Of course, my Northwestern Wildcats won the division. In any case, Madison is a very left-wing place. It's a very left-wing campus. So we have this headline from the New York Post, which covered it. University of Wisconsin moves bolder, seen as symbol of racism. And there's a photo of a big gray rock getting hauled away. University of Wisconsin has removed a 70-ton boulder from its Madison campus at the request of minority students who view the rock as a symbol of racism. Chamberlain Rock, so it's called Chamberlain Rock, atop Observatory Hill, named after a 19th century geologist and a former university president, was once referred to as N-word head rock in an article in 1925, in the Wisconsin State Journal. Minority students have complained that the rock represents a history of discrimination. University historians have not found any other time that the term was used, according to local media. And yet, the university spent $50,000 to move the rock from one part of campus to another plot of land owned by the university. Quote, removing the rock as a monument in a prominent location prevents further harm to our community while preserving the rock's educational research value for our current and future students, says the director of campus planning and landscape architecture. They're saying that this rock inflicted harm upon students Because in 1925, it was referred to once in one article using a term that is offensive. With no other evidence that it was ever called that ever again or prior to that. It was called this once. In 1925. Nearly a century ago. But its presence, The Rock, named after a former university president... And a scientist, it has to go because of the harm. Last summer, the Black Student Union led the call to remove the rock. They quote students who are excited about this, lefties. This moment is about the students, past and present, that relentlessly advocated for the removal of this racist monument, says one student, Juliana Bennett. Now is the moment for all of us BIPOC students to breathe a sigh of relief and to be proud of our endurance and to begin healing. Imagine feeling like you have to breathe a sigh of relief because a rock that is not racist, that was not named a racist thing, that was once referred to in a racist way a century ago, was taken out of your line of vision. And then to celebrate yourself as the true hero of this story, 
for having relentlessly agitated to get the racist rock moved at a cost of 50 grand. And now the healing can begin because you had supposedly deep, deep harm, wounds really, afflicting the soul of the university. And the healing can begin because a rock that was once called something bad in one reference ever a century ago has been moved to a different part of the university. Are we really worthy of these heroes? I stand in awe of their dedication. Their relentless, is the right word, pursuit of quote-unquote justice. And I think that rock has been taught a lesson. Very, very few people will now see Chamberlain Rock, named after Thomas Crowder Chamberlain, a 19th century geologist and former university president ever again. So take that 1925 Wisconsin State Journal article. Progress has been achieved. Thank you, Wokesters. I don't know what we would do without you. And that's your Woke Tale for today. Woke Tales. When we come back, we will turn to COVID and some new smears, although they're not surprising, against some Republican governors in Florida and Texas. We want to engage in some fact-checking. We will do so next. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Guy Benson Show. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you on this Monday and every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Podcast around the clock, on demand, no charge, GuyBensonShow.com. I want to bring you this real quick from NBC News. We've talked a number of times about the U.K. experience and their trajectory on the Delta search. Because they are several weeks ahead of us in terms of their arc, right? their curve on the Delta surge. Roughly a month, three to five weeks is the estimate that I've seen. And NBC News took a look at and examined what was happening over there, the predictions versus the outcomes. Here's how it begins. Quote, it looked like a rolling disaster. England lifting almost all coronavirus restrictions, just as the highly transmissible Delta variant was sending infection rates skyrocketing. They quote critics who were very concerned about this. Some, quote, accusing Boris Johnson's conservative party of paying more attention to their libertarian beliefs than science. Critics worried that these lifted restrictions, so-called Freedom Day, as they called it over there, could allow cases to hit 200,000 a day. What actually happened? Quote, I would say the near future and perhaps even the long-term future looks better than it ever has before, says a professor of biosciences at University College London looking at what actually transpired. Quote, I think the UK is in a very favorable position, a better position than it's ever been during the pandemic because of vaccinations and immunity. The critics and the experts who were aghast that the conservative government was moving forward with the reopening, despite Delta, 
and that big surge of cases, they were aghast. They were convinced that there was going to be just a catastrophe. Cases exploding, hospitalizations through the roof, deaths coming as well, and it didn't happen because there was a wall of immunity that the Delta surge hit in the U.K. Because they have strong vaccination rates plus that natural immunity. Their vaccination rates are better than ours, but are comparable. Right? They've got almost 75% of their adult population fully vaccinated. We've got just over 70% of our adult population at least partially vaccinated, right? So they're better than we are on that front. But when it comes to looking at these types of comparisons and perhaps anticipating what may come based on their example in previous weeks, I don't think that it's too much of a stretch or an extrapolation. It may not be exactly perfect, but this is what happened in the UK. The government held firm They moved forward with their reopening, and in mid-July, just as daily cases hit 60,000 per day, that was in the U.K., they began to decline, and that was followed by a decline in hospitalizations as well. This third wave, writes NBC in the U.K., has been nothing like the first two, which caused nearly 130,000 deaths and briefly the world's highest daily deaths per capita, whereas January's peak saw 80,000 daily cases and 1,300 daily deaths, July's peak of 60,000 daily cases brought no more than 78 deaths in one day. Now, that example from across the pond is not a reason to be complacent in our case. right? We are not out of the woods. We don't have this thing under control. There are bad outbreaks and serious hospitalizations, which will lead to an uptick in deaths, especially in communities where a lot of people are unvaccinated here in the U.S. The U.K., as I said, they're ahead of our game on that front by a bit. But we also have quite a lot of natural immunity in this country floating around. The Brits have a better handle on theirs because they've done these prevalence testing regimes that we have not. But I just think that some of the hysteria, some of the tearing out of hair is premature. I think that we can level with people, be honest with people, talk about the positives of the vaccines. They're clearly learning at least partially some of the lesson about the wages of being unvaccinated because we've seen major increases in vaccination rates, especially in states where cases are spiraling up and up and up. Right? We can not downplay or dismiss the severity of the problem without going overboard. And without completely closing our eyes to what I think could be, and I'm not the only person saying this, of course, there are medical doctors, Scott Gottlieb has talked about this, the former FDA chief, without closing our eyes to a curve across the pond that very well could correspond to what we see here in the coming days and weeks as we lag behind the UK on their trajectory. And I think a lot of the critics over there sound very familiar, right? They sound a lot like the critics over here. Which is not to say every single thing that they say or every warning or every piece of advice is wrong. But in terms of a lot of their big predictions and projections, and we've seen this throughout the pandemic, in many cases they just don't pan out. And that does not stop them from engaging in any self-reflection or perhaps dialing things back the next time they get all amped up about something. 
And I think in order to have a more serious adult conversation amongst ourselves about what works and what doesn't, about best practices and otherwise, I think there needs to be a modicum at least of humility and learning, not just from our own experiences here in this country, but from other countries with similar populations when it comes to vaccines and what happened there and what could happen here without absolute definitive certainty. I'm not coming here on the air and saying what happened in the UK in July is 100% lock, stock and barrel going to happen. Take it to the bank here in the United States in August. Right? We don't know that for a fact, but there are some indications and some parallels that could be very instructive and informative which is why I wanted to bring you this story, and I'm glad that NBC wrote this story, frankly, about the U.K. experience. Now, are we having an adult rational conversation here in the U.S.? In many cases, no, we're not. So there was a back and forth, a tit for tat, President Biden, Governor Ron DeSantis, sort of firing at one another through proxies and directly. That happened last week. DeSantis had responded to something Biden said, then Biden was asked about it, and his response was, who? Right, Governor who? And he sort of smirked, just throwing some shade at Ron DeSantis. Some people were suggesting perhaps Joe Biden didn't know who Ron DeSantis was. He was actually confused. I think in this case it was deliberate sarcasm. Well, DeSantis decided to respond to that barb. And again, I don't know if you can really buy any more helpful media coverage if you're Ron DeSantis, if you have presidential aspirations, which I think he does, tangling repeatedly with the White House and Joe Biden is very helpful to him. With the media coming after him every day, I think that's actually very helpful to Ron DeSantis because it makes him sharper. It tests him day in and day out. He is showing how he responds in real time, not hypothetically, to a huge avalanche of negativity and hostility which has been happening for really the whole pandemic even before the pandemic they've hated him for a long time and this would sort of be punching up as a governor versus the president this dynamic politically helps DeSantis now of course he needs to win re-election in 2022 or 24 becomes largely a moot point right he needs Florida's cases to level off and fall again And for the death rate not to tick up substantially, which, thanks to vaccines, is relatively likely. Of all the red states, Florida has the highest vaccination rate. I know that's something that people don't want to talk about. They want to talk about what they think DeSantis should be doing or mandating or screaming about, as opposed to looking at the actual results, which is where DeSantis has done quite well, especially in a state with a disproportionately older population. But if those things work themselves out through vaccination and treatments and other processes, I think a lot of the critics are simply elevating DeSantis. And whether the White House is doing so on purpose or not, someone who might challenge the president in a few years is getting a lot of attention. And a lot of Republican voters and independent voters are watching. So here was DeSantis shooting back at President Biden over the sort of dismissive, snarky, Governor who? Who? Who's that? DeSantis gave President Biden a reminder of who he is. Cut five. 
I guess I'm not surprised that, that Biden doesn't remember me. Um, I guess the question is, is what else has he forgotten? <laughs> Biden's forgotten about the crisis at our southern border, I can tell you that. Uh, Biden has forgotten about the inflation that's biting the budgets of families all throughout our country. Uh, Biden has forgotten about the demonstrators who are fighting for freedoms down in Cuba. And Biden's even forgotten about the Constitution itself, as we saw with what he did with this moratorium. And I can just tell you, I'm the governor who protects parents and their ability to make the right choices for their kids' education. I'm the governor who protects the jobs and education and businesses in Florida by not letting the federal government lock us down. I'm the governor who answers to the people of Florida, not the bureaucrats in Washington. Now, it was interesting to see some very, very smart, very serious journalists criticizing that rebuttal from DeSantis because he had a list. He had, it looked like a note card or a sheet of paper where he had thought through how he wanted to respond to Biden and make his points about Biden, what Biden's forgotten about, talking about the border crisis and inflation and other things that are hurting people, and then talking about his record, DeSantis's own record in Florida. And these journalists are high-fiving. Oh, look, he's reading off of note cards. He's reading. He had to, he didn't memorize this stuff. Oh, they, they want him, but they don't, They don't know. They don't know that he's not ready for prime time. This guy's still very green. I mean, almost every single one of these hacks voted for Joe Biden. And will vote for Democrats forever because they're Democrats. Joe Biden reads everything off of cards and lists. When he calls on reporters, that's a list. They hand him little note cards as he speaks to remind him of things, including the one the other day. Sir, you have something on your chin. And Biden took that note card, found a little morsel of something on his chin, and ate it. It's kind of gross. But I don't think there was anyone questioning in the press, oh, is this guy really ready for primetime, even though everything he does basically is scripted. Here's DeSantis thinking through how he wants to respond to the President of the United States in a detailed way with good, solid messaging. And they're like dunking all over him because he's looking down occasionally at notes. But when Trump would go off without notes and would just make stuff up on the fly, that was also very bad, right? You can never win with some of these people. And I think DeSantis was smart to actually fashion, knowing that it was going to get a lot of media. He's in a feud, very helpful to him, a feud with the president of the United States. He wanted to make sure that his messaging was on point. And if the best they can do is say, oh, look, he had to look down at notes occasionally, I think that's probably a good spot for him to be. Because that's petty. And the idea that he's untested, he ran a very tough race in a massive, important swing state, and he won, which was an upset. Right? He wasn't supposed to win that race, but he did. If he wins re-election in Florida, which again is crucial to his future, that would be two major statewide races, not counting the congressional races that he ran and won. And he has been tested day in and day out during this pandemic, not just by events like every leader has, but especially by the press and his critics that have been relentless. And it's not like he's been a wallflower just sort of hoping everything turns out okay. He's been very proactive and he's been out there making his case. So I find that interesting. I find it interesting when you see CNN, Jim Acosta. Remember, this is a very serious newsman. They don't have opinion people. 
over at CNN. Only news people. Jim Acosta suggesting over the weekend that the Delta variant should be called the DeSantis variant. How creative. Because I guess Ron DeSantis created this variant, even though his state has the highest vaccination rate of any red state. And he's overwhelmingly protected the senior population with vaccines and prioritized them first and has promoted the vaccines repeatedly. And he was actually criticized for that, if you remember, prioritizing seniors. The media went on this whole thing about how he was rewarding his older constituents. 60 Minutes had the whole conspiracy theory that they ran with that got totally debunked. Anything the guy does, they come after him. I saw the former Democratic lead counsel of the first Trump impeachment, so this was the Ukraine-related impeachment, 2019. So sort of big Democratic lawyer. He went out on Twitter and accused DeSantis and Greg Abbott from Texas in particular of, quote, resisting vaccinations, which is just a lie. DeSantis has been all over vaccinations. He's promoted them since the very beginning on national television. He gave a fabulous press conference recently. We did a whole segment about how good his messaging was on vaccinations. And what about Texas? We'll set the record straight there with some new audio. That's next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, and we're responding to this tweet from a major Democratic lawyer, Daniel Goldman who accused Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas of resisting vaccinations, which just isn't true. Abbott got vaccinated on camera and encouraged other people to get vaccinated. And then late last week, he cut a PSA. We have part of that audio. Listen. Hi, this is Governor Greg Abbott. From August the 6th through August the 8th, it is tax-free weekend in Texas. It is a great time for families to stock up on school supplies for the upcoming school year. It's also a great time for teachers, faculty, parents, and students who are age 12 and up to get your COVID vaccine. The COVID vaccine is the best defense we have against getting the COVID virus. You can even get your vaccine at many of the same stores where you can stock up on your school supplies. Visit covidvaccine.texas.gov to find a vaccine provider near you. This weekend, don't forget to get your school supplies and to get your shot. And always remember, vaccines are voluntary and never forced in the state of Texas. Now, does that sound like someone who's resisting vaccinations or someone who is promoting and incentivizing vaccinations? You can make the case that on masks or vaccines, there are certain things that governors ought to be saying or doing differently. To smear them as if they're creating variants, resisting vaccines, trying to get people killed for political gain, that is just a lie and a smear and a despicable one. Especially when it's so easily refuted. And I think they're just counting on people like us to completely ignore all the counter evidence. And shut up about it and let them dominate the narrative and peddle their partisanship. Well, we're not going to let that happen here. We should be more 
circumspect and accurate. If you have some disagreements on specific policies and rhetoric, let's have that debate and hash it out. But the hysteria is on 11, always, which is why a lot of people have tuned the hysterics out. We try not to be hysterical here. We try to deal in facts, and we try to beat back some of the nonsense and the unfair garbage that is spewing constantly from certain people in our political and media class. The final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned for Josh Holmes. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on this Monday. Glad you're listening and tuned in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. It's the Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is available for free each and every day, including over the weekends with bonus Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. And the happy hour, as always, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic. Had some over the weekend at one of the weddings that I attended. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they are sold near you as they expand or order online. TheLongDrink.com, delicious, refreshing, 21-plus only. Please and always drink responsibly. We are joined now by Josh Holmes, founding partner of Cavalry LLC, co-host of the Ruthless Podcast along with Comfortably Smug. We highly recommend it. Great to have you back, Josh. Welcome. Hey, man. It's great to be here. I uh, I keep hearing about the long drink. It's been months. They still haven't sent any over. Guy, what's up? I mean, you sound like you are wanting a handout here. We like a hand up, not a handout <laughs> here at the Guy Benson Show. So I can direct okay. you very politely to thelongdrink.com, and you can use some of that uh, big money you earn over at Calvary LLC or the, you know from the, all the ruthless okay. swag from the variety program. And maybe get some long drink, or I could perhaps pull a string and, and get some long drink sent to your home, maybe, if you're very okay. nice. I see how it is, yeah. All right. All right. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm willing to go this? along with whatever you recommend. When I get the Variety Program t-shirt, maybe we can barter oh. back and forth for some long drink. I think okay. that could be a fair trade. You've actually raised a good point. I will get on that. That is, okay. that is We need to get on that. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, Josh, I want to start by getting your read on the spending bills in Washington, D.C., especially in the Senate, because you're a longtime McConnell guy. McConnell voted along with several other Republicans, more than a dozen Republicans, to advance this bipartisan infrastructure debate. Not the final bill yet, and there's going to be votes on various amendments and that sort of thing, but it's getting sort of down to the wire on the bipartisan infrastructure piece. Then there's this mammoth three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation package that the democrats are trying to throw everything else into and they want to do that on their own with just 50 votes through that reconciliation process there seem to be divergent views within the conservative movement within the republican party what's the best move here for the gop how should they navigate this legislative thicket 
And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. based on your experience, not just on the campaign side, but especially on the Capitol Hill side, what makes sense strategically and tactically right now for the Republicans, not just from a political perspective, but just, you know, governance? Yeah, well, the only thing to really focus on here and the, and the only area that you can do actual damage, like long lasting, significant damage to this country and to our economy is with this, you know, quote, three point five trillion dollar reconciliation package that Democrats are, are, are putting together. Basically, what it is, it's just an absolute tax and spend bonanza that, you know, includes basically raising everybody's taxes, doubling cap gains. I mean, I'm not kidding you. If they actually succeeded, it would destroy the American economy. And for anybody who thinks it's impossible to create a, a socialist welfare state within the confines of the American capitalist system, uh, look no further than that. It's a sort of a one-step shop to get there. Um, so that's what I've been focused on here almost exclusively. The bipartisan thing, uh, there are those who believe that it takes all of the uh, things that Republicans and Democrats by and large agree on, surface infrastructure projects, puts it in one thing, um, and kind of takes it off the table for people to just sort of focus on, you know, the more egregious, what the Biden administration refers to as the uh, human infrastructure yes, yes. side, <laughs> including taxes and everything else with the bigger deal. But but the problem, Guy, as I'm sure you have, you've outlined, is from the very beginning when the Biden administration unveiled this agenda, they, they have majorities in the House and Senate that are sort of impossible to pass all of this in one because you've got a very significant progressive conference in the House that if they took a walk on anything, they wouldn't be able to get the votes across the finish line. And then in the Senate, you've got Manchin, Cinema, maybe a couple of other, you know, quote unquote, moderate Democrats that don't allow for the more progressive vision that would come out of the House to pass the Senate. So you've got a dilemma here, right? And the dilemma is, how do you get something across the House floor that can also pass the Senate? A lot of Senate Republicans are betting that if they were to take the surface infrastructure piece of this, that Pelosi is going to have to get the, the progressives to just sort of swallow it, which will make it more difficult for them to get it, get the larger tax and spend bill through. I don't know. I sure hope they're right, because we've got to do every, everything possible to stop that tax bill. Oh, I mean, it's it's ludicrous. I don't think there's any other way to put it. It is an absolute joke, especially in this age of rising inflation to then try to spend $3.5 trillion additional dollars on top of the other trillions they've already spent, it's Insane. wild. Yeah, it's crazy. And I think that ultimately they won't get that number. I just don't know how much farther down Mansion and Cinema in the Senate would be willing to go, what their number would be to make it more acceptable. I think that they could probably potentially get something done on a party-line basis. I just don't know if Republicans cooperating on the infrastructure piece – makes it harder for Democratic leadership or might in some ways make it easier for them. I see both sides of that argument, which is why I was eager to hear your thoughts. The other question I have about this, and obviously you are much more in tune with internal Republican politics, but as we look at internal Democratic politics, you mentioned sort of the threat from the progressives on the left, the AOC crowd. If they decide that they're unhappy with something, they can tank everything conceivably right they could right. tank they could tank the bipartisan infrastructure bill if they wanted to they could tank the soft or human infrastructure bill if it's not big enough for their liking 
hypothetically, theoretically, that's true, right? They could get enough progressives to saber-rattle and tell Pelosi, if you don't do X, Y, or Z to our liking, then we're going to make the whole thing a nightmare for you, and maybe we'll achieve nothing. Okay, I see that as one of the paths that might be realistic, but not sure about Josh, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, do they actually have the stones to follow through? And actually make Pelosi's life harder. Because they make a lot of noise, right? They apply pressure. They say things. They go and do hits on CNN and MSNBC. And they send tweets. And they imply that they might not go along with something. Can you think of an example since 2019 when Democrats took the House back over? Can you think of an example where the squad and their followers actually stood up to Nancy Pelosi and actually created not a bit of a messaging problem, but an actual vote counting problem for Nancy Pelosi, especially when the chips are down and it's important because I can't, it seems like there are a lot of bark and very little bite. Well, I can't except with one caveat here, guy. And that's that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer basically turned over the agenda to that wing of the party to begin with. Right. I can't, I can't remember the last time we were talking about something moderate enough (laughs) that, that actually had, you know, the attention of those people in a negative way. Almost everything that has come out of the Democratic Party in the last three years has been off the left-hand side of the map. Bernie Sanders' agenda has been mainstreamed into the Biden agenda and the establishment of the Democratic Party. It's just, that's what it is. So now we've got this really interesting situation, I think for the first time since they've regained majorities in 2018, where there is actual bipartisanship um, on something that's, you know, relatively controversial. We're not talking about COVID relief or or some of the things that passed in the Trump administration era with 90 plus votes in the Senate, this is, you know, this is going to pass with 69, 70 votes. And what do they do? They have the entire power of shutting it all down if they want it. I mean, there's literally just three or four of them take a walk and this thing is, is going to be in grave danger. The question is whether they do it. They have not demonstrated that at all at this point, but, but my argument back to the point that you just made is they haven't need, needed to. The Democratic Party's agenda reflects a very, very progressive agenda that is far outside the mainstream of the American public at this point. And one of those progressives is Cori Bush, a freshman squad member from Missouri, and she gave an interview to CBS last week that was just pure gold. Amazing. Part of what she said, in case people missed it last week, I know that it was covered on this program. You guys have talked about it, but in Cut 12, here's Cori Bush. I'm going to make sure I have security because I know I have had attempts on my life and I have too much work to do. There are too many people that need help right now for me to, to allow that. So if I end up spending 200000 if I spend 10, 10, 10 more dollars on it, you know what? I get to be here to do the work. So suck it up and defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police and put that money into social safety nets because we're trying to save lives. So her life is extremely important. So she's spending a ton of money on her personal security, but defunding the police has to happen, she says. And the point that I've been trying to make here, Josh, because the hypocrisy is obvious, the arrogance is obvious, the, you know, what I deserve and what I am going to get versus what my constituents deserve and will get. I mean, all those points have been made a thousand times. And this goes to what you were just saying, Josh. To me, another really important piece of analysis here is that perhaps a few weeks ago 
you could have had the Democrats and their defenders in the media sort of laugh this off and say, okay, she's getting a little bit excited here talking about defunding the police. That's not the mainstream of the party. She's just this backbencher. She's new to Congress. We shouldn't be putting too much stock in what she's saying. And these Republicans, they're grasping at straws. The problem is, just a few days ago, the reason that I think she was, she was sort of feeling herself there is she had successfully pressured the president of the United States to do something that he himself indicated was unconstitutional in pursuit of her demands and her policy preferences. And she got literal hugs and plaudits from Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Like, you yeah. can't argue that Amazing. she's insignificant when she was driving the agenda on this ridiculous eviction moratorium policy. And then she turns around and talks about defunding the police. It's not viable anymore. It's not operative anymore for Democrats to say, oh, she doesn't really matter. What she says is rather insignificant. They've just proven it's hugely significant. In some ways, she and her compadres are driving the bus. Yeah. Well, I mean, imagine a scenario where a a single freshman House member forces a Republican president in the United States to take admittedly unconstitutional action and basically wave rent again for, you know, anybody who doesn't feel like paying it, I guess, at this point. Um, I mean, people would go absolutely nuts if a Republican president ever took that stand and would say that the party was entirely beholden to this, you know, sort of sort of crazy group within their own conference. Right. Like it's like but Marjorie no, Taylor no, Greene. Like if Marjorie Taylor Greene went out on the Capitol steps for one night surrounded by various snacks and then got the Republican president to do her exact bidding in something that he admitted was not constitutional, I think we know what the headlines would look like. We'd be talking about a constitutional crisis. It's exactly what Cori Bush has done on that issue. And now when she turns around and doubles down on defunding the police, of course that's something that we have to pay attention to. And the Democrats can't just run away from it like it's insignificant. Well, there would be long-form think pieces in the Washington Post and the New York Times about whether it's time to revisit impeachment, right? Oh, here's a president who's not, not honoring their oath of office because of political pressure from the fringes. I mean, you can, it writes itself, right? We've, we've seen it a thousand times over the last few years, but apparently it doesn't apply to Democrats. Yeah, although they might have a point here, to be honest, because I'm saying yeah. openly that you're going to do something that all of your lawyers told you wasn't constitutional, but it'll buy time for your policy preference. That seems pretty, pretty bad. Josh, briefly, only a little bit of time left. I cannot let you go without getting a brief commentary from you on this giant Martha's Vineyard bash from former President Barack Obama. I know they said that it was scaled back. I, I don't know if you saw the photos. If that's scaled back, I don't know what scaled up could possibly look like. My general take is I don't really care if the guy had a great time with a bunch of his pals and they're vaccinated. And I know there was a commentator on CNN who said, well, they're a very sophisticated group of people uh, and, and they're vaccinated. So, so that's fine. That's different. I just have a problem with the message that it sends to everyone else in the country who gets scolded, you know, we're getting, you know, looked down upon and people wagging their fingers and all this stuff. Then they watch the big party moving forward, Barack Obama, and I think some folks might internalize certain lessons there. Well, I think he's done us all a favor, Guy. I think, look, I, I'm all for a big party. Pearl Jam played. It's terrific. It sounds like when you had to cut the guest list, you had to cut all the nerds out of D.C., which I think was probably a good idea. But now we know the score, right? Barack Obama set the scoreboard up for us. So 
No more talk about canceling parties or masking up or quarantines. It's all right, man. Obama just set the Martha's Vineyard score for us all to follow. Happy to do it. Yeah, and if that is, you know, get vaccinated and get as many people as you possibly can into a tent for a giant party, yeah. a tent that's like the size of a Super Bowl stadium, God bless. Go forth, prosper, enjoy. Maybe, Josh, maybe you and I can rent the biggest tent that you and I can afford. We can't afford that one, I would imagine. But we can have a bunch of long drink. That one, but pooling resources, we can get long drink. It's going to be a blast. Right, we could get some ruthless hats. We could have a fabulous time, and we could call it the Barack Obama Party. Right, we could we could honor him. We could name the party after him in honor I of his 60th. Yeah. We would be celebrating theoretically his 60th birthday. We're just doing it separately on our own. I think that's sort of the way that we have to frame it. Any party moving forward, if you're going to get questioned for it, whether it's a music festival or a sporting event or whatever, just say, look, we're doing this in Barack Obama's honor, and we know that that's okay because he said so. It's 100% the way. we got to do it. We're going to go to the Iowa State Fair, the Ruthless Program, (laughs) and our first uh, live appearance, and it's all going to be in honor of Barack Obama. (laughs) Josh Holmes, founding partner of Calvary LLC, co-host of the aforementioned Ruthless podcast. Josh, always good stuff. Looking forward to next time. Thanks, Guy. Talk to you soon. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Guy Benson. We'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him. You love him. You want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Well, Melissa DeRosa, a top aide to Governor Andrew Cuomo, is trying to run and hide. She has resigned. Having worked for the governor since 2017, she put out a statement talking about how difficult and emotionally trying this stretch has been with him. And so she is stepping away. She, of course, was the aide who was famously caught admitting to Democratic lawmakers that the Cuomo administration had withheld key data on nursing home deaths from various investigators for political reasons. She admitted it, and some Democrats blew the whistle on it. She was also involved in the book deal. I mean, she is knee-deep in all of this stuff. So a quick little resignation statement. I mean, I don't know if that's going to cut it in terms of her culpability, but it does feel like some of the critters are rushing off of this sinking ship, the USS Cuomo. And some of the polling suggests that a lot of voters might be rushing away from Cuomo with them. One of his accusers, a former executive assistant going public on CBS, giving an interview about unwanted groping and kissing. I see that the governor's brother, Chris, over at CNN, now on vacation, which I think is at least preferable to not covering a huge news story because your family's involved and you personally are involved, which was the previous approach on that show. So the tough week has become a tough few weeks for the Cuomo family, and boy, do they deserve it. The Guy Benson Show continues next. GuyBensonShow.com It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier in our first hour, Mara Liason dropped by, national political correspondent at NPR and a Fox News contributor. We talked about the state of play in D.C. politics, got her take on it, Listen to part of that exchange. 
I'm first curious about your thoughts on sort of a water cooler topic today among many. This big weekend party in Martha's Vineyard for Barack Obama and his 60th birthday. It looked pretty amazing uh, based on the photos and the videos that have leaked out. I mean, my attitude is sort of hats off. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Glad you had a great time with hundreds of your closest friends. It's just like circus tent, giant tent that they had set up. There are people saying they're not so sure about the optics here, even though it was, you know, an overwhelmingly vaccinated crowd. Is this the message to be sending when so many people are being told their kids have to wear masks and they shouldn't do this, that or the other? I just wonder how you think that looks. And is this an overblown controversy or do the critics, at least of the optics, have a point? Well, I think it's an overblown controversy, and here's why. He's not the president. He hasn't been the president for a while. He, according to his spokesman, they followed every CDC guideline. Uh, if it was outdoors, it's in an area that they don't have high transmission, so I'm assuming people didn't wear masks outside. But they were vaccinated. I think masks were actually provided. And I think the real question is, will this turn into a super spreader event? I think then... It gets to be a political problem. Are there going to be all sorts of people who went to this party who developed COVID? We don't have any indication that that's the case now. Uh, But that is the only way that I see this become a real problem. I think there are all sorts of what you might call pseudo problems that uh, partisans on either side like to gin up. Um, But the president, uh, former President Obama, had said that he was curtailing the size of the party. In other words, it was supposed to be much bigger, and then he said it was only going to keep it to family and friends, but he has a lot of friends. Yeah, it looked like a lot of people. I mean, if that yeah, was scaled down, <laughs> I, was, yeah, I mean, yeah. I would love a scaled-down party that looks like that ever uh, because yeah. it looked pretty amazing. And again, I don't begrudge him. It, it looked fantastic. If I had somehow wrangled an invite, I would love to be on Martha's Vineyard for a weekend and, and party with a bunch of yeah. famous people and that sort of thing. And I just think... If you get vaccinated and then you're going to go live your life, I'm all for it. I just think that we should be treating everyone the same way. And yes, absolutely. I, yeah. And I worry about that a little bit in terms of what yes. that image, these images and the reports, what message that sends to people in the middle of the country who have never been to Martha's Vineyard, who have a lot of government officials and you know pe- members of the Biden administration and sort of the glitterati class all gathering at this very fancy place to have this big bash while saying, oh, you know, you need to do this and you ought to do that. And we're in the middle of a public health crisis and it's so irresponsible. I think that there are nuances to the guidance and to the way we talk about these things. I do think sometimes a photo can cut through a thousand words of CDC guidance. And when you see a giant tent on Martha's Vineyard for a big party of the beautiful people, I can see why some people might just roll their eyes and say, all this stuff they lecture us about, they don't even really believe it. And so I'm just going to live my life. The problem is that the message is so confusing. People are not being told to go back to lockdowns. My full interview with Mara Liason of NPR and a Fox News contributor, available on our podcast, which is free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the team is all back together. After weeks of missing pieces, the full Guy Benson Show crew back in action today. We will talk about 
So much of the busyness that consumed the last few weeks, the weekend, the travel, it's been a lot, and we'll address it as soon as we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch as we kick off a new week here on the Guy Benson Show. Final segment of today's program. Glad to have you here. Well, I was off Thursday and Friday because I was traveling, and that was long planned. It had nothing to do with my breakthrough case of COVID, which we talked about extensively last week before I left. And I was just hoping, praying that I would test negative in order to be able to maintain my plans and go to a couple friends' weddings over the weekend. And fortunately, that's exactly what happened. On Tuesday night, I could tell that the case was weakening, at least in terms of the testing. I was talking to Dr. Sapphire about that. And she said, I bet you're going to test negative tomorrow, Wednesday, which is exactly what happened. Then I tested negative again on Thursday. And following the doctor's guidance, attended an outdoor wedding on Friday and then another wedding, both in the state of Colorado, on Saturday. So big congratulations to Vanessa and Logan and Deep and Harshi, the two couples. Very excited to be a part of your festivities. Adam and I had a great time back in his home state, got to see his parents, and Colorado really is a very beautiful place. But it's just been nonstop. I hadn't been home almost at all. Over the last three weeks, because of all sorts of different travels, New York for Fox and speaking gigs, and I mean, it's been a whirlwind. And in fact, I go back up to New York later this week for more TV, but that's okay. I prefer this to everyone being at home constantly. That is at least my personality. But made it out to Colorado, got through the breakthrough case. All of you who sent well wishes, I really appreciate it. It was short. It was relatively painless. I mean, it was extremely mild. And all the guidance that I got from Dr. Sapphire was just fantastic and much appreciated. Now, I was confused on Wednesday's show before I said adios and took a few days off. I was under the impression that Quiet Wyatt, our associate producer, was headed to Italy this week. Like he'd be gone right now. That's what I thought the timeline was. I was off by a week. He leaves for Italy. We think, we hope, knock on wood, this coming Friday, and then is gone next week, his first ever overseas trip. So I was bidding him a fond farewell in Arriva Derci, and then he texted. He's like, no, that's you're off by a week. I said, okay, we'll address this on Monday. He is still here in the USA, but there are some concerns that he might have to stay depending on what the EU might do in response to a Biden policy, why are you getting worried that this trip might get indefinitely postponed? I, I, I was this morning getting worried. I still am slightly worried, but I just saw that the governor of my home state of New Jersey, uh, Governor Murphy, is actually headed to Italy tomorrow. So I feel like if the governor of New Jersey is going to Italy, why can't Wyatt go to Italy? Well, you've forgotten a very important lesson of COVID, Wyatt, which is little people such as us don't get to do things that important people get to do. And so just because a Democratic governor 
wants to get his Italian vacation in, that does not mean that someone such as yourself, a mere citizen, a mere constituent of his, will be afforded the same privileges. And here's the thing. Let's say the EU comes out with some new travel restriction to retaliate against what Biden's just done. You know that the governor of New Jersey will get some sort of special dispensation to get back home because it's you know a matter of governance and all this stuff, and strings will be pulled. I'm not sure if the strings will be pulled for a Fox News producer <laughs> the same way they would be for the Democratic governor of New Jersey. That's my... My only concern there, I know producer Christine is convinced that you're going to get to go to Italy, but then you're going to get waylaid, and you won't be able to come back, and she's going to be, I mean, she was borderline threatening on the call earlier today. Christine, what's the deal here with this paranoia? You know, if Wyatt gets stuck in Italy, he will just shift his work hours, and he will do his job from over there, if need be. I know he will, and he is awesome, but obviously we're not going to make him do that if, God forbid, he gets stuck in Italy. Uh, you did say on the phone call today that you would prefer me not to threaten the other staff, so I will be And nice it's just really it for your he- sake, right? Just in case HR is listening, right. I just feel like uh, open threats on the air, probably not great, right? Not what I would advise. I mean, you're my best friend. You're looking out for me. I appreciate it because if, God forbid, I got suspended, then what would happen? You know? Who's going to make those sparkly Instagram story posts? Well, I I think Wyatt might be able to just take the whole thing over from Rome, and we'd be fine. But, yes, you're indispensable, Christine, naturally. We, We will affirm you in that just so we can move on to our next subject, which is a voice that has been absent from this show now for weeks. And for aficionados of the home stretch, some may be wondering, where the hell is Max? Because Max is a frequent contributor to these nonsense conversations that we have at the end of every show, but not for the last few weeks. And that is because he was at a wedding a couple weeks ago, so he was off for a couple days, then back briefly, then on vacation for a week, and then sick for a week. And it was, I mean, I had the breakthrough COVID case he was much sicker in terms of actual symptoms than I was. COVID negative. It was not COVID. There are other illnesses that still exist. I know sometimes we kind of lose sight of that when we're all focused on one huge issue. But, Max, it sounded like you had a spectacularly fun week followed by a spectacularly awful week. Yeah, life comes at you pretty fast, guy. Two weeks ago, I was having the time of my life living in a mansion beach house for an entire week, eating lobster and other delicious seafoods. And it was just fantastic playing tennis, going to the beach, going swimming in the pool. I was living the dream. And then that Saturday, the day when we were supposed to come home, I kind of woke up with like this really wicked neck pain and then like a headache immediately after that. And then from then on out, I had the worst symptoms I've had in a very long time. And it wasn't COVID symptoms. Like, I didn't have COVID. It wasn't like I lost taste or I didn't lose smell or anything. yeah. It was just like a really bad headache, awful fever, got up to 103. Yeah, 103 is serious. That's up there. So it was just from the highs to the lows. And I'm still like 99%. I'm not 100%. 
I have like you know the little smooth jazz voice going on right yeah, now. Yeah, it's slightly it, weak voice. It, I'm not a hundred percent max, but maybe well, by tomorrow I'll be back to full max. Max, max, perhaps. Yeah, max, maxed out, if you will. Max power. But you're not quite there yet. Now, how much? Because she claims to be your best friend. How much love and care and attention? Did you get from producer Christine? Did she send you care packages? Did she cook for you? Did she offer to come into the city to to bring things to you? Because when I was sick, I had friends bringing me stuff. Uh, Your dear, dear friend Christine, what did she do to help you get through that series of trials and tribulations? She reached out a few times. I got to give it up to Christine. A little round of applause. Uh, One time. I didn't threaten him. One time she called me drunk, I think. At least she was slurring some words. No, no. Uh, but I, th- I think you were on the mama's juice. You said you you you've had a little mama's juice, but no, it was all in uh, in good taste, and uh, I do appreciate that, Christine. You, so you she really, reached uh, out. She yeah. reached out and didn't threaten. That is different than a proactive offering of assistance and help. But at least it's something. I will give her credit for that. And now you're back. And let me ask you this, because this is actually a test of how fun the previous week was. Did it make the second week worth it? Which is to say, like, if you had a choice of going through what you went through, which is the amazing week, then the horrible week, or just working two normal weeks, which would you choose? I don't know. Last week was miserable. Like, I don't get sick often, and this just hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, I mean, you've been producing, and you've been running the board for this show, and even the predecessor show benson and harf now for years i don't remember you getting sick for maybe more than like a day or two yeah. when it was just day after day after day and you're like you know by wednesday or thursday or whatever it was you're like yeah the fever is 103 so i don't think i'm gonna make it i was like whoa that is serious so it sounds like sounds like that second week was bad enough to to cancel out that first week yeah, of it, it fun was and pleasure. That, that first week was almost like moot. Like, oh, and I well, haven't been sucks. to that house in like two plus years because last year with COVID, they were a little hesitant. So we finally got to go and it was so much fun. And then just And the wham. party was over. Yeah, yeah the party really ended real fast. fast. Uh, well, that's a bummer, but I'm glad that you're feeling much better. We're glad to have you back here in the seat. Uh, you know, running the board uh, with all of your tricks and talents extraordinaire. Producer Christine, before we go, do you have any quick, curious Christine questions, either for Max about his illness, because that's certainly something I'm sure he loves talking about in front of the whole country, or uh, the wedding weekend that I just wrapped up in Colorado? I, I don't have anything for Max. I mean, Max, you also, one more thing, you got to give it up. I only asked you maybe once Per day, when are you coming back? I think that was pretty good for me. <laughs> At least you were thinking um, about me, Christine. Yeah. Always. Always. Always As thoughtful. I, always thoughtful. Um, I have to give it to you. You are a trooper because, you know, you were COVID positive and then you, you tested negative multiple times before you went out there. Now, was anybody listening to the show that was in the wedding or at the wedding and were they worried that you were there or was everybody just so happy you were there? I think everyone was chill about it. We talked about the whole situation with a number of people and they were great about it. And I think when you are in constant consultation with a doctor and then you test negative multiple times, 
then you've got all the antibodies that you could possibly want. I think that that's reassuring to a lot of folks. So, you know, I was, I was good. I wore masks where I was required to wear masks and in very confined spaces, not just airplanes, elevators. That's what Dr. Sapphire had recommended. But in bigger indoor spaces, open ballrooms and that sort of thing, or especially outdoors, um, I didn't wear a mask. I was very transparent and had an outstanding time. I took it relatively easy. Right? I wasn't drinking that heavily at either of these weddings. Part of that was just like, look, I just got over this illness. I've been traveling a lot. We've got a wedding tomorrow, or then the next day we're flying, and I didn't want to be hung over on a plane, which is just the worst. And so I just took it easy. Also, I was at altitude, right? So your breathing is affected even when you're 100% healthy. Getting back to the gym in Colorado and exercising in Colorado is always tricky, but I did it, and it was not my favorite thing ever, but I felt like I had to do it. And then having too much to drink at altitude will just be a big a big problem for you. It'll set you back. So I made a policy of consuming huge amounts of water while I was there, and I feel fantastic. I feel great. That's amazing. Well, I just want to say I'm so happy my three best friends are all back. And, uh, Wyatt, I, I promise no more threats or potential threats on yeah, you, we'll, your we'll life, We'll see how long that promise nothing. lasts. Yeah, that's, that's what she's saying now. But if things get dicey, the panic will ensue. And I think that promise might be on the rocks, might be a little shaky. Because she'll promise things, I think of French onion soup, for example, and then not follow through. Just a cautionary tale. We're done with the Monday edition. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett Baer. Back here on the radio tomorrow, it's the Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.